Today on this edition of the Forest City Church Podcast, Chad Brugman is our guest teacher. Forest City, how are you guys doing? Good? That's what I'm talking about. I just want to do this. Like uh, Eric said, my name is uh, Chad. It is an absolute honor to be with you guys for a couple of different reasons. Um, the first one's selfish. I just absolutely love like brothers and sisters, uh, Eric and Chrissy and their family. And so anytime I get to be a part of what God um, is doing in them and through them, this is a, a, a treat for me. This is a selfish moment kind of for me. But then secondly, I get to preach the best news we have on planet Earth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So before I get into that, can I just kind of prep us and can I just kind of remind us that how many of you, let me ask real quick, how many of you are breathing currently? Everyone? Good. So we don't need the med team or anything. Okay. That's a good thing. And here's what the Bible tells us. It says, let everything that's breathing do what? Praise God. And it doesn't put any qualifiers on it. It doesn't talk about how difficult life is right now. And for some of you, you walked in here and life is handing it to you right now. There is a gift we have been given when we praise God. Something just starts to, and I can't explain it. I can't fully quantify it. It's something spiritual that takes place. But when we just start to praise and worship God and get our eyes off of ourselves and our situation, something powerful just happens. And so I just started doing that in my hotel room this morning. I just started reminding myself of the goodness of God, like we sang. And I started worshiping and praying myself happy. And then we started singing about the goodness of God again. And I don't know about you, but I was like crying like a little schoolgirl in here. Like, because that's like my story. It, whether life's good for me right now or not, God has just always been faithful. In fact, there's a statement by the Apostle Paul uh, in the New Testament where he says this. I think it's, it's, it's a phenomenal statement that I'm still wrapping my head around. He says that that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. And then he says something even crazier. And he said, here's why God can't disown himself. And you know what that means? That means God's not faithful because he has to wake up every day with us crazy humans down here and choose to be faithful in spite of us. It's, it's just natural. It's who he is. It's the essence of the DNA of our creator. He is just faithful. So it doesn't matter what you walked in here with today. You may be on the back end of one of your worst failures, your worst mistakes. You may be neck deep in a sin pattern right now that is taking you down some roads you wish you'd never had gone down. Can I just remind you that even at the height of human faithfulness, God remains faithful all the time? Why? He can't disown himself. It's just who he is. And so I say that to say, whatever you walk in here with, wherever on the spectrum of life and human experience and emotion that you're at right now, God wants to be faithful to you. And God is going to be faithful to you, right? Like the Bible said, I read it this morning in uh, Lamentations chapter three, the steadfast love of the Lord never stops. His faithfulness never stops. And then it says this, and we're going to talk about this word today. It says his mercy. Everybody say mercy real fast. It said his mercies are brand new. How often? Every morning you qualify for the faithfulness and the mercy of God today. And I'm just believing with every ounce of faith that God has given me as a gift that before we walk out of these doors, we're all walking out of here better than we walked in for no other reason than the sheer faithfulness and mercy of God. You guys want to believe that with me this morning? We might as well. We're here, right? So I want to do this before we jump into the word. Uh, would you guys mind, since I didn't uh, get to bring my family with me uh, other than a picture, can I introduce you to my family since most of you don't know me and I don't know you? Put that up there. That's my crazy family. Uh, as you can see, I have four kids. I totally should have had two. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Kind of. But um, 
No, I'm grateful for the four kids I have. That oldest is, uh, his name is Jude. He's a freshman in high school. My daughter, this picture's a little dated. Sorry about that. Uh, she's a seventh grader. Her name is Jane, and she is an absolute boss lady. Look out, world. Remember that name. Uh, Benjamin, he's my favorite kid of the four by far, without question. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I totally do. Favorite kid. We're keeping him. And then we got we to gotta take a moment for this little guy down here. You see that picture? You see him mean mugging? That's Cruz. That's Cruz Brugman, uh, known in our house as Boss Baby. Uh, I thought we'd have a fourth kid and he'd just be chill because he's just got to go with the flow with the bigger kids. He runs our house. And I'm not proud of that. That's not the biblical order. I'm supposed to be in charge. I'm supposed to be the dad and all that stuff. That kid, can, we, can you do this before you leave here today? Can you commit to this? Will you pray for his salvation? <laughs> I, I'm, you laugh. He's not saved. I promise you that. If you knew the kid, I love him. He needs to be saved. It's like the great Latino theologian once said, Nacho Libre. I fear for his salvation. And I really do. Like, that's huge. And then I save, of course, the best for last. That is my uh, beautiful, sweet wife of 17, almost 18 years next month, uh, Rachel. And we have a really cool dynamic uh, in our house because my wife uh, was privileged to be born out of the country. And so it adds this really cool cultural dynamic to our house. She's from this really small, obscure little country just south of America. You probably heard, you heard of Alabama? So she's, yeah, so I'm married. I'm married, yeah, so... Uh, I wouldn't talk that tough if they were all here. So I'm just talking. I love them though. That's my family. I just wanted you to get to know them uh, since you don't know me very well and and think about it. I'm about to uh, talk to you guys about an unseen God. And I'm guessing for most of you in this room, the most precious thing in your life and in your existence is this relationship with God. And here I am, another broken human being who bleeds red and has problems and issues and struggles and beauty and brokenness just like all of you guys. And I'm supposed to come up here on behalf of the living God who's unseen and talk to you about him. That's quite a task, is it not? And so can we just do this for just a second before we just rush into things? Can we just still our hearts and can we just start to pray? And can we just ask that as we begin to worship God by how we listen, that something powerful would happen, something would be transcendent beyond my human ability to articulate God, which is very flawed and incomplete. But man, every time I get up and get to preach about this man, Jesus, something just beautiful starts to transpire. And I so desperately want every single one of you to sit under the sweet mercy and the beautiful grace of God today. I need it. I know you need it. So let's just offer this moment to God through the power of his Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you just in this place do whatever it is you want to do? Sweet Spirit of God. This is your house, not ours. Spirit, you're the helper. You're the comforter. You're the encourager. You're the counselor. You're the convictor of our hearts that leads us to Jesus. And more than anything, Holy Spirit, in such a sweet and gentle way today, would you point us more and more to the person of Jesus? Would we walk out of here more and more enamored with this man who put it all on the line? to redeem us from our failures, to save us from our sins, and to call us back into heaven from earth. God, I just pray in these next few minutes, you would bless us, Holy Spirit, with your precious, precious, sweet presence. We revere you, Holy Spirit. And Jesus, this is all for you. And so we pray it in your name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So we're starting a new series 
that's been titled Sunday School, and I love that I got week one of this series. How many of you grew up in church? Like, you've been in a church for a while now. Okay, you've done it. Okay, how many of you are familiar with the great Protestant evangelical phenomenon known as Sunday School? Like, you were there. You've been there, right? The felt boards, the crazy teachers, all of that stuff. So I grew up as a ministry kid. And so I've been in church all my life. And as a kid, I was in church way more than I wanted to be because every time the doors were open, our family was there. And if there was one saving grace for me as a little kid in too much church, it was Sunday school. I just love Sunday school. We went to a tiny little church in a beach town in California called Santa Cruz, California. And our church was so small. And there was two reasons that I absolutely love Sunday school. The first one was this, the donuts. Our church did nothing of of excellence. Like, I loved our little church, but the one thing, the one game that we had that was spot on was the donuts, and I loved me some donuts. Like, we we were the church that hedged all of our evangelistic bets on donuts. Like, if we have donuts, they will come, and nobody came. And and I loved it because I got to eat so many leftover donuts. It was just a beautiful thing, and so I loved it for the donuts. And then secondly, and even more importantly, I as a kid loved Sunday school because of the stories. Remember, get out the felt board and start putting all the pieces up progressively as the story started getting read out by the teacher. I love the stories, especially those Old Testament stories that you guys are going to be covering in these next few weeks. Because those stories, man, when you really start to think about it and put yourself into those stories, they read like these epic movies that we get to watch nowadays with all the CGI technology and all of that stuff. They read like epics. And so that was my favorite part of church, especially the felt board. We need to make the felt board great again. I don't know about you. I love technology but that thing was incredible because we got to participate. You guys remember how that went? So like I had a teacher because my church was small, she kind of progressively walked through Sunday school with me, all of the grades in elementary school. And uh, her name was Mrs. Wilson. And I absolutely loved Mrs. Wilson. And Mrs. Wilson absolutely did not love little Chad, okay? (laughs) Also a couple of reasons. Number one, and this isn't why she didn't love me. She was very kind, a great teacher. But I I grew up with like some learning disabilities, uh, some dyslexia. Incredibly hard for me to read. I was reading at such a lower grade than all of the kids in my school that it was very difficult for me. So I had that going on. But at the same time, I had some gifts that God has given me as a little kid. And one is I was verbally gifted. And what I've come to learn, and some of you teachers can amen this with one tear coming down, when you have a kid that is academically weak and verbally strong, that is the teacher's worst nightmare, right? Like, it's just a recipe for class to go awry. I'm that kid, right? And so I've got, I've got that going on with her. And then I also have this gift, and I think some days, and some of you, you're like me, this is also a curse some days. I'm highly analytical. Any of you guys highly analytical? Like you just are thinking things through all the time. And so I had this ability during these Sunday school stories to take these stories down a path that the other kids either didn't think to or they just didn't even care to. Right. And so we'd be doing like, no, let's do Noah's art. We'd be doing like Noah's art felt board. And Mrs. Wilson would be handing out all the pieces. And, you know, everyone got a different, you know, the boat you got to put on. Someone got to put on the dove. Most of us got like me. She gave me the donkey. And looking back now, I I see what she was doing in that. I got to put the donkey up. But then the teacher's favorites got to put what up? The rainbow. Right. The sign of God's covenant. And so uh, someone would get the rainbow and I would just be so enthralled with these stories. And I was so psyched to go up and put my my donkey up on the board when it was my turn. And then she'd be done and she'd be like, all right, kids, let's remember God's the God of the covenant. Every time you see that rainbow, remember God's the God of the covenant. And then verbally gifted, analytical little Chad would be like, and I talk like this in second grade, "Uh, Mrs. Wilson, uh, 
that story was awesome. I love it. Thanks for letting me put that donkey up there. Uh, just one question, though, Mrs. Wilson. So are you telling me that, like, thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, like, drowned in a flood? And she's like, no, 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 Chad. No, no, kids. <laughs> like, no, but, like, moms and dads were, like, holding their babies above water to, like, keep them from dying as they were going to their... And Mrs. Wilson's like, no, kids, remember the rainbow, Chad. Chad, go get a donut. Will do. I'm on it. <laughs> Like, I knew how to do it, right? <laughs> or David and Goliath, right? And we'd be wrapping it up, and we all put our pieces up there. And she'd, now let's remember, kids, the rocks of integrity and mercy and the rocks of kindness and love, right? And remember, kids, you can slay your giant. Ms. Wilson, that story was awesome. Thank you for telling it. That's so cool. But can I ask a question? So, like, a little youth group kid goes to a battleground with, like, big adults, and no one will fight the guy, but the youth group kid fights an 11-foot giant, and he kills him with a little rock, and then he goes down into the valley, and he cuts his head off, and he starts showing it to everybody, and then he, did that really happen? Kids, now let's remember this, the rocks of integrity, okay? You can slay your giant Chad Donut. I'm on it. Let's go. Right? <laughs> on it. I guarantee you, Mrs. Wilson, bless her heart, had a flask hidden in her Sunday school desk with my name engraved on it, right? Like, donut for you, little bourbon for Mrs. Lois over here, right? Like, like I, I, that was Sunday school for me. And, and here's what I don't apologize for back in those years is that whether I meant to do good or not, like, the stories in scripture, like the meta narrative of scripture for a city church, we got to remember this. It is peppered with scandal and it is unafraid of scandal. I don't know about you, but I love what the Bible doesn't leave out. I love that the Bible is unafraid of the vastness and the beauty and the brokenness of the human experience. If you could put beauty of humanity on one end and the brokenness of humanity on the other end, and then the rest of all of life experience in the middle is like this spectrum. This is what I think is so beautiful about Sunday school is the Bible just gets neck deep in the good and the bad of humanity and even the ugly of humanity. And it doesn't apologize because the word of God is writing a story that it already knows the end to. And it knows that there's going to be this one human that comes in and in the midst of all the bad and the ugly and the beauty and the brokenness, he is just going to walk in the essence of what we were originally designed to walk in, which was this perfect beauty, this awe, this effortless wonder that he so desperately because of his faithfulness and mercy over us wants to restore back to us. And I think, and, and I, I'm, I'm, on an, I'm on an evolutionary journey just like you are in my faith. I'm learning more and more as I grow up and become more and more of a human being. But in my 47 short years on this life, I just can't keep getting away from this one thing in the kingdom of God that I think is the chief fundamental to the kingdom of God. And it is a word that should be talked about and sung about and proclaimed about week after week, one way or another. And what I've come to find out, especially as I preach messages like these everywhere, where I go is it is amazing how many people don't talk about this word we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. It's amazing how many people come up to me afterwards and go, I can't tell you the last time I heard a sermon about mercy. And so I just want to do this for a few minutes with you guys. We're going to go back to Sunday school. And one of the stories that I remember very clearly in Sunday school, although it wasn't one of those epic Old Testament stories, it actually read kind of boring on the surface especially when they were trying to be age appropriate with us. It's a story where Jesus calls one of his disciples and his name is Matthew. 
And Matthew just, pretty cool to do. He just gets up and quits his job right on the spot. I did that once in my 20s. Don't do it if you're younger, but it is pretty cool. He just gets up and quits his job. And he just follows Jesus and we would do the felt board and it just played out like so simple. See kids, isn't it worth following Jesus? But what I think some of you know and some of you don't know and will be surprised by is when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, he's putting his whole reputation on the line as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a good man. He's losing all of his ceremonial cleanness as a rabbi the minute Jesus says, come and follow me, Matt. The minute Jesus says to Matthew, hey, come and follow me, about half of his followers, because it was Matthew that he called, would have instantly left the Jesus team. And what Jesus is doing in this moment for a city is displaying this, and I use this term purposefully, I'm not being dramatic here, it's this display of scandalous mercy. And here's the cool thing, he's no respecter of persons. God shows no favoritism, which means that type of mercy is available for everybody on planet Earth, including you, including the person you're sitting by. And can we even go a step further? Including your enemy. Because Matthew was an enemy of the state. Let's go ahead and put that up. This is Matthew chapter 9. I think we're starting in verse 9. It says, passing along, Jesus saw a man at his work. And this is how I would hear it in Sunday school. Collecting taxes. We'll come back to that. His name was Matthew. And Jesus simply said, it sounds effortless and nice and easy, right? As if being a disciple is easy, right? He says, come along with me. And Matthew stood up and he did what? He just followed him. And it's easy in Sunday school to end the story right there. But Matthew being a tax collector had incredible implications in first century Judea. Because if you didn't know this, in first century Judea, the tax collectors were actually local people who grew up in that small town. And in first century Judea, this was an incredibly oppressed place. The Jews were being oppressed and marginalized by the great empire, Rome. Rome had their proverbial feet on the neck of the Judeans. And they were taking full advantage of them. And for their own gain, they kept pushing them down. Come on, we see these systems happen in our society all of the time, right? It's nothing new. And Rome was ruling the world at that point. And this is what they were doing to the Jews. The Jews were already incredibly poor, and marginalized and oppressed, right? Some of you, you know what that feeling is like. And now Matthew's the tax collector. Now, if you ever read your Gospels very much, you'll see that there's two categories of sinners, right? There's sinners, and then what? Tax collectors. Like, they got their own, that's not good when you have your own category, right? It's like, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We get that, yada, 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 right? Like, of course we've all sinned, but at least I'm not a, huh. at least I'm not a tax collector, and, and here's what mercy wants to break through. I think we all probably have a category in our hearts and minds right now. I know I do, where it's like, yeah, of course, Chad, I'm a, I'm a sinner. Of course, we're all saved by grace, but at least I'm not so-and-so, right? At least I'm not, and then fill in the blank. And this is the, the barrier of marginalization that Jesus was coming in this moment to try and break down, because here's the interesting thing. As Matthew is a tax collector, what he would do is he was hired by Rome to collect ta- taxes from his people. So what he would go and do is he would take the the, the taxes due to Rome and then Rome with a handshake to Matthew said, any money you want to take above and beyond for your own personal gain at their expense, we will endorse it. You will have the full backing of the Roman soldiers and army behind you so you can take as little or as much as you want. So the tax collectors were their own family with their own skin and their own DNA. They grew up going to school together and now all of a sudden Matthew is this traitor who is taking already oppressed people 
and pushing them farther into their poorness, their poverty and oppression by what? Getting rich off of their backs. And here's another interesting thing. Matthew was a tax collector we know at the Sea of Galilee, which meant the chief currency that he would be taxing was fish from professional fishermen who made a living and fed their family by fishing. Now let's think about this. You know who the first four disciples Jesus called were? Peter, his brother Andrew, James, and his brother John. You know what they did for a trade on the Sea of Galilee? Fished for fish. Do you know who was at a booth right outside of their job taking a bunch of their hard-earned money and hard-earned fish at the expense of maybe their kids having an extra meal that day? It was a guy named Matthew. And you know who the fifth disciple Jesus would call? We just read it. Hey, Matt, come along with me. Well, that's a cute Sunday school story and a cute invitation to be a disciple of Jesus. All hell would have broken loose in that moment. Can you imagine just Matthew, James, Peter and John alone, Andrew, when, when, when Matthew gets called their arch enemy, right? They're like, Jesus, you have just royally screwed up life group in ways you can't even think about. We had such a good thing going on, Jesus. We all dress alike. We all talk alike. Our vernacular is the same. All our cultural rhythms are the same because we're just so immersed and neck deep in what we do. And not only do you bring this new guy in who we can't, he's literally our enemy. Paul would call people like this, the scum of the earth. This is as low as it gets. And this is Jesus doing something so redemptive and so beautiful. But man, is it convicting. And man, is it challenging. He's taking the person that represented the most brokenness, the most sinfulness, and the most scandal around him and saying, you get to be a part two. Remember this crazy thing Jesus said that I still can't fully understand when he said, love your enemies, Forest City Church, and pray for those who persecute you. And I think he would add, based on this story, at some point, maybe invite him in. And here's why I think Jesus knows what we often forget, which is, well, there are so many beautiful things about the kingdom of God and about the human experience. The only thing that can ever change a human heart is mercy. And there is no plan B or plan C or plan D for the human experience. The only way for someone to truly repent of their sins, to come to the kingdom of Jesus, to bow a humble knee, to surrender their hearts, is there has to first be a gift that you can't earn, you can't deserve. It's without merit. There's no self-righteousness that you can place on the work of God when he saves your soul. And so Jesus is just doing what Jesus came to do, right? Hey, Matt, come and follow me. Listen to what the Bible story goes on to say. It says this. Let's go back to Sunday school. Later, so Matthew follows him. Half the crowd leaves Jesus on protest. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house, with his close followers. Listen to this. I love this about you. You may not like this. I love this about Jesus because I think I'm kind of a bit of a disreputable character sometimes. His house was, uh, he was with his close followers. A lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. See what mercy's doing? It's building trust. Why? Jesus wants those enemies of the state saved. He wants them sanctified. He wants them redeemed. He wants them holy. He wants them healed from whatever dysfunction brought them to the place where someone like Matthew would start ripping off all of his brothers and sisters in the community. Jesus is just doing something that they couldn't wrap their heads around. They wanted justice. They wanted judgment for Matthew. What's Jesus come and bring them? Mercy. You guys remember what it says in James chapter two? Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
And this is Jesus as his disciples, as his people in a community. He's saying, this is what I'm asking you with all the courage as a disciple you have for a city church. This is what I'm asking you to be in your community. A community where mercy triumphs over judgment. But can I just tell you something about mercy? It is inconvenient. And it demands an incredible amount of courage. And it demands an incredible amount of human wholeness on our part. You can't give to somebody something you haven't received. It demands for a city an incredible amount of faith for you to continually be a recipient every day of those new mercies that come every morning. And the more and more you receive the sweet faithfulness and mercy of God, the more you and I are going to be compelled to have to give it to the Matthews in our life. And that is the only time the church is going to ever make a difference. We can play church, we can sing, we can dance, we can preach, we can have nice buildings and nice facilities and nice parking lots and great teams. And all of that is necessary and great if mercy is the medicine of this house. Apart from it, this is an exercise in futility. This is not only a waste of our time being here today, it's, it's dangerous being here today. Like we are here to be filled up, to glorify our God, to continue to partake of his goodness on our life, his faithfulness, his mercy. But it's not just so we can walk out of here feeling better about ourselves. It's so we can walk out into communities full of Matthews, full of people who have hurt you. Who have, and I don't want to make light of anybody's difficult experience. But I'm just saying, as I continue to grow up and get older in my faith, if not us for a city, who's it going to be then? Someone's got to start with the radical acts of mercy that follow in the ways of our rabbi Jesus. It says he had a lot of disreputable characters that came and joined them because mercy is the ultimate currency that earns us trust. And once you got trust in another human's life, it is amazing how big their ears and hearts get open for the message of Jesus Christ. It's mercy. When the Pharisees saw Jesus keeping this kind of company, this is like the religious folk that just want to play church, do church. They want, to, uh, uh, they want power. They're gaining this pseudo sense of power off of the merits of their behavior, their ability to you know, uh, fall, jump through the hoops of the Torah. This is, this is who the Pharisees are. So, of course, Jesus, this is an affront because he's a rabbi at this point, Jesus. And eating with tax collectors made him instantly ceremonially unclean. And so they're using this as a reason to say, see, we told you he's a false prophet. We told you he's not the real deal. When they saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit. And they lit into Jesus' followers. Notice they didn't light into Jesus. They've already tried that. It's never gone well. So the bullies, the Pharisees, they start picking on his followers and they say this to him. They say, what kind of example is this from your teacher? Acting cozy with crooks and riffraff. I don't know what riffraff is, but it sounds bad. And I love this. Jesus, overhearing, because he created hearing, shot back. It's not good when God claps back, ever. It's never going to go well for you. He is undefeated when God claps back on anything. Jesus shot back and he asked him this question, which I ask us this morning as the body of Christ. I don't think this is a question that should ever get too far off the horizon of our hearts and minds in the church. He says, who needs a doctor? The healthy or the sick? goes on to say this, go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. Then listen to this. He says, I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. The most vibrant, 
growing, dynamic, and I don't say growing in the size of thousands showing up. I, I don't care if it's small church, big. The most healthy, dynamic, vibrant churches in their DNA are churches that are obsessed with the outsiders. That are obsessed with being the hands and feet of Jesus. Radical agents of mercy. So that we don't come in here and just play church. And trust me, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to me. I'm preaching with you today. I'm tempted to this. The longer I've been in the church world, the the natural inclination of my heart, the the natural uh, inertia always just goes towards comfort, does it not? That's just part of the human experience. And church is supposed to be so many beautiful things every time we darken these doors. But one thing it should often not be is comfortable. If you're completely comfortable about the way and about the vision of any particular church moving forward, you need to ask questions about that church. Because we aren't, as Jesus' disciples, put here to be comfortable. We were put here to be merciful, and mercy is uncomfortable. It is beautiful when you receive it, and it is profoundly difficult when you have to give it. But he said, I didn't, come, I didn't come to coddle insiders. I came to invite outsiders. We had a, 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 a part of our vision at Red Rocks Church that we would tout and repeat all of the time to our church because we wanted it to be in the lifeblood of our church in Colorado. Parks, you remember this. We said it all the time, and I'll even put it up on the screens. Forest City, listen to me. We as the church, as the body of Christ, we are here to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Right? Think about that. We are a triage, not a country club. We are a triage for the broken, for the wounded, for the hurt, for the oppressed, for the marginalized, for the broke, for the depressed, for the disheartened, for the anxious, for the mentally ill, for those with special needs. That's who we are. That's the only thing we're called to be. And it's in those radical displays of mercy that we offer to ourselves and then to others and to our family and then ultimately to this community. When that starts happening, beautiful things start to take place. Because listen to me, mercy is the medicine in the kingdom of God. It is the only thing. The mercy, the unmerited, undeserved favor and grace of God is the only thing that will ever call a sinner back into their rightful place in God's original intent that he wanted us before sin came in the world. This is what we're called to do is be radical agents of mercy. And so I remember, and I need to wrap up, but I'll finish with this story. You guys care if I tell you a story? I'm going to tell it anyways. I don't know why I asked that. This incredibly, incredibly important and profound story in my life. One of the most important. Uh, Gosh, I don't even remember. Probably, it was probably 15, almost 16 years ago. My wife and I, new church planters in Denver, Colorado. You know, every church planter suffering for Jesus, poor as can be. I was working three jobs. Some way God opened up the door in a really uh, expensive city with an expensive cost of living to, to buy our first home. And our first home, we, loved, we were so proud. And it was in the hood, and we loved it. We loved our hood. And our house was old, and we had vision for it. We were going to fix it up. We were proud of it. And we moved in, and we met some neighbors in different places, and we almost didn't sign the papers to move in. And I'm so grateful we did because of one thing. And it was my neighbor to my right. 
Because when we pulled up and we were looking with the realtor, the first thing we saw, you guys ever seen this house? It's the house where the lawn is like this high and paint's falling off and they haven't cut a brush or a shrubbery in years. And there's like seven cars out in the parking lot and only one of them works every now and then. You guys know what I'm talking about? Because if you don't, guess what? It's you. (laughs) I get on. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's that house. And, and I'm thinking, as a young professional, I'm thinking about the cost of living. I'm thinking about resale value because this wasn't hopefully our forever home. I'm thinking of all of these things. And I'm going, no matter how much we like this house and how right it feels, I don't want to live next to them. And I remember having this thought in my heart, and I'm so unproud of it. And it's so gross to me to this day. But I remember one of the things I thought, and I didn't say it out loud, but I will now, is I said, if that's what the outside of their house looks like, I can't imagine what they look like. If that's how they feel about taking care of their home, I can't even imagine how little they probably take care of themselves. That's what I was thinking in my head. I was being pragmatic. I was being practical. Not even thinking at all that this rabbi who I claim to serve and I'm a pastor in the name of once told me to love my neighbor as much as I love myself and he doesn't qualify who gets to be your neighbor, right? Doesn't matter the size of their lawn or however many broke cars they have in their parking lot. So by God's grace, we, despite that, Signed all the 3,287 papers you got to sign as a new home opener. Jesus be with us. Signed them all. Moved into our house. And the day we were moving in, I had my brother with me. I had some of my best friends with me. And we got the truck out there and we're moving stuff off. And I still haven't met that neighbor. And to be honest, I kind of didn't want to. And I remember I was getting ready. I was helping carry a desk off the truck. And the door slams open. And out comes this guy, and he's only like 5'7", but he's like got the voice of Goliath. And he's he's got ripped old jeans, old work boots on, his hair. He's got the, well, now I think it's cool again, but he's got the weirdest mullet ever. And it's uncut, and his beard is messy, and he's got no shirt on. He's got a huge beer belly, and he just comes out, and he looks at me. He goes, hey. It was like that. And we all go, what? He goes, you're not going to call the cops on me, are you? You could instantly tell he was drunk, and I'm sitting there, and luckily I'm thinking it. I didn't say it, but I'm sitting there looking at him going, I'm absolutely going to call the cops on you, because <laughs> if that's the first thing you thought to say to me, I guarantee this is a pattern here that we have going on. So yes, I'm going to call the cops on you probably more than once, and I confirmed all my suspicions about moving in. And I was so mad, and he, he went back in the house, and almost for a year, you ever played this game with your neighbors? If, if he was out there and I had to be at work on a certain time, I would rather be late and risk getting in trouble than go out and possibly have to say a few words to my neighbor, right? You ever done that? Look through the window. Come on, i got to go to work, but I can't talk to you, so I'd rather be in trouble with my boss than talk to you. That was me. That was me. And so, uh, and so it was about a year before I would actually have a real conversation with my neighbor who... His name is Cliff. I got a phone call at work, and my wife was flustered, and my wife's a pretty chill girl. I was like, what's going on? And she's like, Cliff's out, and he's driving drunk, and he's been out twice, and he almost hit Jane, my daughter. She was little at the time, my son. They used to, we had this awesome tree in our front yard, and they would play out in the front all the time. She's like, I'm so flustered. I'm sorry. He almost hit Jane, and he was pulling out, and he was super drunk, and he like skidded out. And I was like, click, and I turned into Papa Bear with young kids. And I went there and I drove and I I got out of my car and I went straight to his door and I just banged on it and he opened it and he like sobered up a little bit when he saw my eyes. I was like bowed up a little bit, right? Like I'm a new dad, I'm in Papa Bear mode. Never felt that before. And I looked at Cliff and I said, Cliff, I want you to listen to me. I heard you were driving drunk today and I heard you got really close to hitting my little daughter. 
I said, I'm going to tell you this, okay? I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm a pastor, okay? And in my faith tradition, our, our, our highest value is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I'm going to try really hard to love you really well. I think my wife and I can love you really well if you'll let us. But listen to me. If you ever drive drunk again while my kids are out front at all, I'm not going to come over and have another conversation with you. I said, Cliff, I'm going to kill you. I'm not proud of that guy. As Michael Jackson, I'm a, I'm a lover, not a fighter, okay? Like, that's not me, but there was this dad. You know what I'm talking about, fathers? There was this dad adrenaline that came over me, dad strength. And I wasn't even seeing clearly, and I, I walked away, and I didn't say any more words, and I went into my house, and I started trying to calm down, and I started praying because I'm a good pastor guy, and I start, I'm not praying, I'm yelling at God, and I'm like, blah, blah, blah. The Holy Spirit, I love the Holy Spirit because he's gentle when we're not. He's steady when we're not. And the Holy Spirit, I think, let my adrenaline go down. (laughs) He honored biology for a minute. And then as I was calming down a little bit, he just said, I want you to go forgive Cliff. Go ask for forgiveness. I got mad again. I'm not asking for forgiveness, Holy Spirit. What are you up to? He needs to come over here and ask me for forgiveness. He drove drunk and almost killed my daughter. Surely, God, you want him to come and ask me. Go ask for forgiveness. And come on, Forest City, a bunch of you have been doing this Jesus thing a lot longer than even me. You know what? It's When the Holy Spirit speaks, just obey. Right? There's always a blessing on the other end of the obedience of the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so any ounce of humility I could draw up, I just did it and I went over. And I knocked on the door and I looked at Cliff and I said, listen, Cliff, I'm not going to lie. It's not the best way to do an apology. <laughs> Start with disclaimers, but I, 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 I'm learning how to apologize. And I said, Cliff, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm still really mad. I go, man, that's my daughter. She's tiny. You almost hit her and you didn't even know it. And he's just half drunk. Like, he's just a drunk. He's a drug addict and an alcoholic. So he's trying to be functional, but he's just kind of listening to me. And I looked at him. I said, Cliff, here's the deal. No matter what you did today, no matter how mad I was, you don't deserve to be talked to like that. And I just want to say I'm sorry. And that was a, I'm not being dramatic here for city. That was a turning point in my walk with Jesus when it comes to this thing called mercy. Because as of 15 minutes before that, he was my arch enemy number one. He was my Matthew. And Jesus is like, no, we're going to ask him. We're going to ask him in. And it's going to start with mercy. You're going to put your reputation and your feelings and your desires and your bias. and your. We're going to put all that on the line and you're going to go ask him. And as soon as I said sorry, I saw a sobriety enter into Cliff for the first time. He stood up a little straighter in that moment. And then I, I would get to know him for years and I would start to realize the reason something so powerful happened when I just said a simple, merciful, I'm sorry, is because Cliff, his whole life was on the other end of apologizing. You understand that? Because of his drug and alcohol addiction, he lived an incredibly dysfunctional life. And so he woke up pretty much day just telling everybody sorry for something. Paying for some kind of different addictive sin or addictive dysfunctional thing that was rearing its ugly head in his life. And for the first time, somebody else looked at him and genuinely just said, Cliff, I'm sorry. And put the power in his hands and said, would you forgive me? And everything changed that day. Cliff and I started talking. Something broke in that relationship. I started getting the heart of Jesus for Cliff instead of the prejudiced and biased and privileged and gross heart of me. And we started being friends and I, I made this little deal with them that anytime I mow the lawn, if I have time and I'm going to stay home after that, I'll leave the garage door open and he can come over and we'll just talk for a little bit. And we did this for several years. I'd leave the garage door open 
He knew once I was kind of mowing, he'd act, come out and act like he was doing something to his lawn. Lord knows that wasn't happening. He'd have a beer in hand and we'd sit in my garage and he'd drink beer and I'd listen. He's a pretty fun conversation. Trust me. Sometimes we, for two hours, and I just started to get know th- to know things about him. Because let's go back to the Matthew story for just a minute. Do you know why Jesus shows mercy in such beautiful ways that we often can't imagine? Is because Jesus is perfectly whole. He needs nothing from nobody. There's no brokenness in Jesus. There's no ego in Jesus. There's no pride in Jesus. And the more whole you get from the mercy you receive from the God, here's the beautiful spoils of what transpires the more you get whole, is you start to care more about people's backstories than you do their behavior. That's why Jesus, knowing Matthew's story, knowing his reputation, could so easily say, hey, come and follow me. Because Jesus knew that Matthew didn't grow up with those kids dreaming of the day he would extort from them and steal from them. Jesus knew what none of them had the time or the mercy to get to know, which was something happened in Matthew's life, and we don't know what it was, where something changed, and he went from a beautiful, kind, innocent kid to a stealer of money from already oppressed people. And Jesus is like, you really want to stop the oppression? No more factions, no more yelling and screaming at both sides. You know what we have to do? Someone has to step in and offer, offer the, 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 not the victim, the victim, someone has to step in and say, you got to be forgiven or this will never stop. You got to be made whole or this will never stop. And Jesus knows what we often forget. Mercy is the only medicine. And I know it's scary and challenging. But Jesus was teaching me like great rabbis do, teaching me through Cliff of all the people, the most unsuspecting person was teaching me how to be a disciple of mercy. Chad, I want you to be a radical agent of mercy. And I'm going to use an alcoholic, drug-addicted, dysfunctional guy. And you're going to befriend him, and he's going to befriend you. And your real lesson isn't going to be in seminary. It's not going to be by all the books you read and anything you have up on your wall, any plaques. Your real lesson in being a pastor, a true pastor, is going to come from learning what it means to show mercy to people. And to be more interested in people's backstories than their behavior. Are you willing to do that? Because it's going to be inconvenient and it's going to cost you something and it's going to take a whole lot of courage. You willing to do that? And Cliff taught me that the best possible answer by far is the word yes. So we got to know each other more and more. We got to hang more and more. God kept working on Rachel and I's heart. She started cooking meals for him. We'd bring them over for him. We put him to work around our house. He's a very good construction worker. At one point, God said, give him your car. We gave him our car. I wasn't happy about that. I'm not that good of a human. Don't make it sound like, Chad, you're so great. I'm not. I just, that's that Holy Spirit. Say sorry. Give him your car. I started doing this thing a couple times a year where I'd take him out to get steak because the dude had nothing. And we'd go, to, we'd go to the Outback Steakhouse and we'd get steak and then I would take him on a shopping spree to get construction work closed so he could go and try and get a job. And we had the funnest time. And every time I took him out to eat, shoulders, he was so proud. He was talking functionally to people in the stores because he was getting something that the human heart desperately needs in this broken world, which is mercy. A gift you didn't earn, you didn't deserve. It was just given to you on your worst day and your worst season to change your heart. And I saw his heart start to change. And I'll never forget the moment 
in my garage where he asked me about Jesus and started genuinely talking to me about Jesus and he was sobering up and I'll never forget him telling me with tears in his eyes that 10 feet away from where we were sitting in my garage, he watched his mom overdose as a kid and he was the one who walked in on her when she was breathing her last breath as she was overdosing on heroin and then I would find out that his wife his one and only wife he ever had did the exact same thing in the exact same house I found out that Cliff was 10 years old when his mom overdosed and he walked in so I'm starting to get the backstory you guys tracking with me because Jesus cares way more about the backstory than the behavior because he always wants to get to the root of it and I started to realize any 10 year old think about this any 10-year-old that has to walk in and be the first person, the first responder to their mom who is dying of a drug overdose and then into his adulthood he has to see the same thing happen with his wife. Listen, I don't want anyone to be bound by addiction. I know what that feels like. I've been there and done that. But I understood the addiction for the first time. It was no longer you're just this dysfunctional mess of all your bad decisions. It's like, no, you were a 10-year-old kid emotionally stunted in that moment when your neural pathways had to process. Think about that. His neuro, just the biological implications, more or less the spiritual. His neurological pathways, his neural pathways had to process staring at his mom breathing her last from a drug overdose and then live from there on out without her as a little kid, vulnerable. Think about that. These are the stories that people all over the 815 have behind their behavior that we can often as the church get self-righteous and judgmental about. And I just came to plead today. City, or I'm getting all this. Forest City. I can't, Heartland, but Forest City. <laughs> the Church of Jesus. There we go. I'm just pleading with you today. If not us, Who? And if not now, when? Like, what if we were the people that said, this year at least, there's going to be one person in my life who's my cliff. And I'm going to, by God's grace and grace alone, I'm going to get more interested in the backstory than the behavior. And it's going to cost you something. And it's going to be inconvenient. Some people will judge you for that kind of radical love. And I'm telling you, it will bring a fullness of life to you you haven't had before your cliff enters your life. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you already have. Been there, done that. So I wrap this up. I know I've gone too long. Parks, you can fire me. Get on a plane. I'll wrap this up. But this is such an important thing to the health and wholeness of the church of Jesus Christ. One day, it was a Saturday, and there were, I woke up and I looked out my window and I was opening the blinds and there were eight cop cars outside of Cliff's house. And that really bothered me because there was usually two. Two was protocol with Cliff. And I knew the cops' names. It was like some fight with his brother or his dad, you know, or some drunken bitch, something stupid. There was eight. And they were there for like almost an hour. And I kept looking out. And me and my wife started looking out. And at this point, Cliff and I had become buddies. And my heart started to sink because even as I sat in my garage and got to preach to him the gospel and I got to pray the prayer of salvation and it was authentic, y'all. I've been there and done that. It was an authentic him putting his childlike faith in Jesus. He still said, I can't make it on this side of the earth. I still, I can't, I'm drinking myself to death. And I looked out and I just had this pit in my stomach. And then finally we put the blinds down again. And then almost an hour later, I open the blinds, I look up. And my heart just sunk because out came Cliff and he was in a body bag. And I just knew right away what had happened. 
And I called my wife over and she just knew right away. And we were like tearful. And I was starting to cry and she was starting to cry. And I said, I'm going to go out. I'm going to talk to Chuck, his dad. And I went out and said, Chuck, what happened? He says, I don't know. I never even, I didn't even hear. I didn't even know. He went in the basement sometime in the middle of the night and he just took his life. He passed on. And I don't have a sweet red bow to tie on to the end of this story. Because that's not how life always plays out. But what what I got to tell you was I got an awesome opportunity to genuinely preach and pray the gospel, and more than anything, show Cliff the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in return, Cliff was teaching me lesson after lesson after lesson about the beauty of Jesus Christ. And someday, I believe with all my heart, and I'm not here to mess with your theology or what you were taught growing up, but I believe with all my heart that what happened in my garage was a genuine salvific experience. And we are not saved by works, good or bad, lest any man should boast or be condemned. We are saved by grace through faith. And I believe someday I'm going to mow Cliff's lawn in heaven. And I know it's going to need it when I get there. Like, like that's what I know. So we're about to sing a song. And it's incredibly appropriate for this message because the title of it is Reckless Love. And this is what mercy is. I don't want to soft sell you today and then get on a plane and be like, great, I hope you enjoy it. I want to tell you the truth. Being a disciple of Jesus is inconvenient. And it's going to cost you things that it won't cost the rest of the world. And it's going to ask this of you, wholeness. Radical agents of mercy are first people who radically receive it. That's where our wholeness comes, to be able to give to other people, to have margin in our souls and our spirits to give to other people. To let the pride go, to let the ego go, to let the hate go, to let the hostility go. You have to be whole. And that's what God wants for every single one of us. And so as we sing this song, I want you to sing it in two parts. Number one, I want you to sing it over yourself. I want you to be reminded of the absolute scandalous, unapologetic, reckless love that God has for you while you were yet sinners, Christ died. But then I also want you to start thinking of some of the people and some of the names or people groups in your life where you said, it's time for me to start being a radical agent of mercy and quit playing church games and quit just coming here to be coddled and to be told all the things I want to be told. It's time for God to do such a spirit-led infusion of his mercy into my heart and my life that I walk out of these doors and I take profoundly serious the 815 and every single person that God has placed in our community, including the ones I like least. God, help us as a church to be reckless in our pursuits, to put it on the line, to give up reputation, to quit caring about how we look or how we do, and to just be for people, to just be agents of mercy. So if you guys will stand, I'm going to pray, and we're going to finish. We're going to worship through this with this song. You guys have been incredibly kind and attentive, and I don't take that lightly. Thank you so much. So Jesus, in these next few minutes before we walk out of here as we worship through this song. God, I pray that you would do such a beautiful and such a sweet work for the glory of your name. You've been listening to Chad Brugman, special guest speaker at Forest City Church. Thanks for listening.